Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detours, episode 66. Rob here. On this episode, we're continuing our X-Men mega series, moving into the last batch of, uh, of episodes here with 2016's X-Men Apocalypse. Of course, we're covering the 10 X-Men films, not including the Deadpools and New Mutants, because it's that really a thing. Uh, so from 2000's X-Men to 2019's Dark Phoenix, and this episode we're talking 2016's X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, I'm joined by Claire from the W-Rated podcast for this episode. It was a really good conversation, a film that I think most people toss in with X-Men Origins Wolverine uh, and The Last Stand and Dark Phoenix. Like I think most people consider this one of the lesser known entries, but you know, Claire and I might have surprising things to say about that. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this episode. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 2016's X-Men Apocalypse. Some believe that the first mutant was born thousands of years ago. He was some kind of god. And he's going to rise again. You are all my children. And you're lost because you follow blind leaders. No more false gods. I'm here now. He always had four followers. Like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Together we will cleanse the earth to the strongest. We'll take everything from them. He means to destroy this world. Billions of people killed. The world needs the X-Men. You're gonna join them, aren't you? You wanted me to get out of the house more, right? It's all of us. Against a god. Let's go to war. You're not students anymore. You're X-Men. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. Certainly not the X-Men franchise uh, that we've been talking about for several weeks here. That's 10 X-Men films on the 23rd anniversary of the original film and this episode we are talking 2016's x-men apocalypse and i'm honored to welcome to the show claire from the w-rated podcast how are you doing hi i'm doing very good thank you uh excited to talk x-men yeah no absolutely well we we talked we were just saying right before i hit record i think within the last six months or so we were talking about teenage mutant ninja turtles out of the shadows which is Another movie that sort of uh, got a a I mean I think a little bit of a 
unfair reputation, I would say, about both these movies. The one we're talking today and Out of the Shadows. Would you agree with that? I would agree. And I also think that was 2016 as well. Yeah, yeah. There was also the Ghostbusters movie in 2016. And I'm wondering if we were all just very unhappy people in 2016. I mean, there in the US at least, there was definitely reason to be. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> in the lead up to uh, a certain world-changing event. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's a good point. Like Everybody was just like, oh, I don't like anything this year. Yeah, we all just wanted something to take our minds off things and none of yeah, these were good much. enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything was held to a higher standard in 2016. So tell people a little bit about W-Rated before we start getting into X-Men. Yeah, so W-Rated is the podcast I uh, co-created and co-host, where we are watching the worst rated movies according to IMDb's Bottom 100. Um, So every week we pick a different film and we talk through it with a guest and we talk about the film itself, our opinions of it. If we can, we try and talk about the pre-production, the production. We talk about how it was, you know, released and how people found it. Um, And then we kind of just say, do we agree that it is one of the worst rated films of all time? Um, And yeah, some of them are and some of them aren't. (laughs) Yeah. Does it tend to be pretty extreme? I, I forget if I asked you that last time. I know last time I asked you if there any been any like discoveries that you're like, this is not that bad, actually. So I just literally today yeah. finished editing our episode on Nicolas Cage's Wicker Man. Um, oh, boy. And that was a film. I, I watched the original and then that in a row. But like, I don't think I found it a particularly good film. I think I rated it 2.5. But at the same time, I don't believe it deserves to be on the worst list of all time. I don't think it's so bad that like it needs to be held up in shame. I think there right. are so many worse films. Um, so yeah, I haven't haven't really seen any. I think we tend to be on the side of this is a bad film, but this isn't one of the worst hundred films we've ever seen. We sort of toe the line in the middle, but we've only done one of the top ten. So you know, when we do the full top ten, maybe we'll think differently. <laughs> I think with the Wicker Man too, because we I've covered the original film mm-hmm. on uh, the sister show to Franchise Detours, Close Watch, and that's kind of an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. And I think with the remake, it doesn't really have a take on it. It's just like let's just let Nick Cage run loose and see what happens. And I, have- I think, yeah, go ahead. I actually, so it's not, this is not my opinion. This is our wonderful guest on the show's opinion, but there actually is a take because in the original, it's all about religion. Right. In in the remake, it's a battle of the sexes. The, the island is completely women and they use men and it's sort of an allegory and it's a kind of feminist, you know, retelling, but it's, the, it's, what is that term? The sports term, like they fumbled the bag or whatever. Mm, like yeah. it, it wants to say something about gender and sexuality and things, but it doesn't quite know what it wants to say. It was the it was the lead up to Barbie in that regard, I it, guess. <laughs> absolutely. Nicolas Cage just needed to sing I'm just Ken and then yeah, there you he go. wouldn't have ended up he wouldn't have ended up on fire. <laughs> yeah, there it is. He wouldn't have crossed paths with all those bees. <laughs> I guess. I no, actually, yeah. well, I watched the non-bee cut, so I was devastated. The uh, oh, original no. theatrical version has no bees. It doesn't have the person, not the bees. Ah, no, nope, that's only in the director's cut. We wow. Very sadly. That. Weird. <laughs> yeah, that's very so strange. weird. Anyway, we're not talking the Wicker Man today, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're talking X-Men Apocalypse. So what is your 
go before we talk about this specific movie, what is your history with these characters? We talked a completely different set of comic book based mutants last time. Where, where, when did you first come across the X-Men? What was sort of your, uh, where were you when these movies started coming out as far as your familiarity with these characters? Yeah, so it's probably very similar to the Turtles. You know, I was born in the late 80s, a child of the 90s, two older brothers and a dad who was mad into comic books. So I don't exactly know when I learned what the X-Men were, as I feel like they were always just were. Um, Mm. We had like lots of the figurines. Um, I remember specifically having like a Cyclops and a Storm figurine that I loved playing with. Um, And I used to watch the cartoon when it would be on before school. So when the first film came out, like I remember it being a really big deal. Um, Ironically, though, I didn't go and see it. I do think, when was that? 2000? 2000, yeah. So I was 10. I don't think I had much choice in what I went to see. And my family weren't like a movie-going family. But I definitely saw it um, at school, actually. I had a science teacher who really loved that film. And every Christmas, he'd always show it to us. (laughs) So that was my like entry into the film franchise. And I saw X2 at the cinema and loved it um and then for some reason just never saw last stand i think the bad reviews got got through to me and that sounds about right yeah and then when the kind of reboot came through it wasn't until like until i watched first pass at home i was like oh these are good and then i i went to see days of future past apocalypse and dark phoenix all at the cinema um and had nice times and you mentioned just before we hit record that you never really got into the Wolverine movies. Is it just, you just prefer your X-Men as an ensemble? So I went to see X-Men Origins Wolverine when I was at university and got a deal where I only had to pay three pound for my ticket because I was a student. And I hated that film so much. I genuinely considered asking for my three pound back. Um, I thought X-Men Origins Wolverine was one of the most poorly constructed, convoluted, non-plot films I'd ever seen. It was like talking, talking, explosion, talking, talking, cool walking away from something, explosion, explosion. Another thing that looks, it's like they went, what will Wolverine or Hugh Jackman look really cool doing? Let's think of five of those things and then we'll write a movie around it. Um, And as you can see, I'm still quite bitter about how much I hate. And then I tried, so I did not go to see The Wolverine. Um, Tried watching it at home once and I think I got like 10 minutes in and just went, no, thank you. I don't need this in my life. And it took until last year for me to finally give in and watch Logan. I liked Logan. Uh, People were right, but I had been, I had been soured. (laughs) I mean, if there was an X-Men movie to sour you, X-Men Origins would be the one. Yeah. <laughs> it's also that, that my issue with that film, and I, I mentioned it in the episode I did on that movie, is that it is basically like a Wikipedia page. It's like, hey, yeah. you know what happened to him. Let's spend two hours showing you that, you know, in in pretty oh. pedestrian detail. All it needs is Patrick Stewart doing a storybook like voiceover. And next, yeah. Wolverine went to the land of... <laughs> pretty much yeah it's a it's a weird road this franchise has taken just so like, strange you you even said that like you went back and rewatched most of these movies for uh for this episode which yeah. i really appreciate and it's it's you so you've gotten sort of a microcosm of what i've been dealing with the last several weeks just and it, it's the evolution pun intended i guess of this <laughs> franchise from an, a, an, a trilogy sort of a straightforward you know superhero trilogy to spin-offs to 
you know, First Class was initially a reboot, and then Days of Future Past sort of changed, retconned it into a prequel, and then mashed together the timelines, and then now Apocalypse, where we're just pretty much like, this is where the beginning of the road to the original film sort of starts. It's like, sort of, kind of works its way around to to be full circle, wouldn't you say? Yeah, which I think is so unfair to put on a movie. Um, And one of the reasons, so yeah, from yesterday morning to today, I watched X-Men, X2, Last Stand, First Class, Days of Future Past and Apocalypse all in a row. I took a break to um, go and get some shopping and to sleep. Um, And it is mad how many ways one relatively small franchise in the long scheme of things can retcon itself. Every film they are retconning something from the previous film. But it's not like a franchise like Halloween or Friday the 13th. The same bloody guy is doing most of these films and the same writer is doing most of these films. What what are they doing? <laughs> I think this movie you can kind of almost, like if any of the films deserve sort of a a free pass almost. Mm-hmm. Like this one, like literally after Days of Future Past changed the timeline. And I feel this so movie, sorry yeah. for it because it's trying yeah. to be, what what we should have had after First Class was a direct sequel to First Class, which could have been Apocalypse mm-hmm. and I think would have been better. But then they wanted to rush in the Days of Future Past storyline and it is a great storyline, but it was way too soon with these kind of new versions of these characters. And I... I think it was an insult to the filmmakers of First Class because they had created this really exciting new world and these really exciting new interpretations of these characters. And then they are forced to, instead of being their own thing, be carbon copies of the original timeline to make them all go together. So then you've got Poor Apocalypse comes along. And now is it a sequel to First Class or is it a sequel to Days of Future Past or is it a prequel to X-Men? And unfortunately it has to be all free. Yeah. Whilst also bringing in Apocalypse and like spoilers, I, I think this film is fine and really overhated, but I remember when it came out and I had that opinion, a lot of people said to me, what is your history with Apocalypse as the comic book character? I said virtually nil and they went, that's why you like it. So I think the, the character was too big for a film that already had to do a hundred things. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And and I think what happened too is Matthew Vaughn came on and did first mm-hmm. class sort of last minute. And then once Fox was able to get Brian Singer on board, they kind of kicked Matthew Vaughn yeah. to the curb. And then Brian Singer, <laughs> Brian Singer came in and did his own thing with Days of Future Past and then returned for this movie. It, it sort of feels like he doesn't, like even though he sort of he reseized control of this franchise, it feels like he I don't know, it doesn't feel like his heart is quite in this one in the same way that maybe it was in Days of Future Past. Do you get that sense? Cause I, I don't know, I just feel like I do because he's on autopilot a little bit. I, I well I think he had his own issues because it turns out well, yes. maybe not the yes, best of definitely. men. Um so that was probably on his mind. But I think it's that thing of like he doesn't want to play with these toys and Days of Future Past shows us that. He wants to play with the toys that he made. He bought his old cast back, he bought his old crew back, and he kind of there's still you've still got some of the writers. Matthew Vaughan's got a writing credit as just Jane Gold. Goldberg, um, who wrote First Class with him, it also has a credit on Days of Future Past. And you're kind of going to feel like he's forcing his old stuff back in right. so that he can do the story he wants. When you get then get to Apocalypse, he's not got the old 
cast back, but he's got this new cast, none of whom he casts, probably who he doesn't have much of a relationship with, but he's got rid of all of the behind the scenes people from first class. So it's basically like, well, I'll play with these toys because they're the toys I have available to me, but I don't really like them. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to kill off all of the new and interesting mutants that were brought in in first cast and maybe even Days of Future Past and just bring in younger versions of all of my favourite characters that we had in my original movies because they're the good X-Men. I mean, it's telling when (laughs) there's that scene with Mystique on the plane and they're like, she's telling about talking about her first mission, and she's like, "Oh, what happened? To all of them?" And she's like, "It's just me and Hank. <laughs> we're the only ones left. We're the only <laughs> ones that were in that original trilogy and are still here." They uh, dead. They all dead yeah. on a piece of paper. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Days of Future Past, there's that scene where she's like, "Oh, you know, Banshee has got killed, and Azrael got mm. killed, and like others." She's looking through the files, and like, yeah. "Oh, okay." Brian Singer just laid waste to everyone, yeah. which I think works in that movie though, because it fuels the the motivation of that character. But it's also kind of a bummer for fans of first class who are hoping to see those characters continue on. Absolutely. Like how insulting to kill Zoe Kravitz off on off screen via a piece of paper. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is a bummer. And I think the thing for me as well, that I really found egregious and apocalypse is the completely unnecessary time jump. We're suddenly in the eighties just so again, I feel like he can have the right ages for Jean and and Scott and Storm. And I'm like, right, you just think they're the coolest X-Men ever and you don't want to rock with any X-Men that haven't. So you've made us do a time jump that makes no sense within the story, makes no sense within the characters because they all still look like babies. And you then also, like, we lose a decade of storytelling and you sort of just gloss over it with a, yeah, so they all just went to the wind. That happens every movie, like from First (laughs) Class to Dark Phoenix. It's 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And it's like... It's not worth... It doesn't actually give us anything, like... Yeah, there's nothing '80s about it other than a couple of costumes. So why bother? But, but like McAvoy, Fassbender, Holt, Lawrence, they they look the same. Yeah, <laughs> it's supposed like, to be forty years old, like thirty years older by the time you get to the next, the last one. It's like, yeah, how how old is McAvoy? Is he supposed to be in his fifties? He's supposed to be almost the age of Patrick Stewart in the original film because it wasn't not even, quite there. It wasn't even that one. It was um, Evan Peters. He's yeah. like, oh, that's, yeah, he's that's like, oh, I've just spent the last decade living in my mom's basement. And I'm like, yeah, you should now be in what, your 30s? Yeah. Um, you don't look like, and I guess they could probably be like, oh, he's a mutant, he ages differently. But it just, it, there just was no need. Right. No, I agree. I agree. It's a little bit like the, um, I think with the Brian Singer dilemma, like you were saying, it, it's a little bit like the Star Wars sequels, I think, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. With, with where, uh, you know, we had... Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and then Rise of Skywalker is kind of like, I don't know, like the first one, let's let's bring it back full circle. Let's just kind of like, there's this push and pull between, behind the scenes. Like, you will really like Peril, but you'll get mad at us if we actually kill someone. So we're just going to pretend to che- kill Chewbacca for two minutes, but don't worry, yeah. in two minutes yeah. he'll be back. That's a whole separate conversation. That movie's <laughs> such a mess. Uh, one thing I did, you know, you were saying uh, this doesn't feel very 80s, and I agree with that to an extent, but it's also... Of these movies, and I have yet to rewatch Dark Phoenix. I haven't seen that since theaters, so I, I yeah, I, I had, my I had time to watch that today, and I chose not to. Yeah, that's probably the that's probably a good choice <laughs> from what I remember. But it, 
first class is set in the sixties and it has sort of a kind of mod sort of James Bond esque mm. sort of vibe to it. And I it. think they really lean into the sixties in that one. Yeah. Yeah. Days of Future Past has like the 70s political mm-hmm. conspiracy thriller kind of aspect. And then to me, this felt like this felt a little bit akin to sort of those 80s dark fantasy, like Temple of Doom, Golden Child, Big Trouble in Little China kind of. Uh, here's this crazy creature created with practical effects who wants to take over the world. And obviously there's a lot more CG in this movie, but it did feel like a li- it was at least a little bit kind of in, in that vein. See, whereas what I thought they wanted to do was be like, this is like an 80s Brat Pack movie and we've got all the cool teen X-Men yeah, that too. and they're just going to go off to the mall for a bit. Like all of that scenery is completely unnecessary. Yeah. And it, it would have been interesting. Like I would definitely watch uh, like Adventures of the Teen X-Men. Like that was half the cartoon, I feel like some of the time. Yeah. But not in this series because this series is about the tortured love affair. Well, like not even love, but like triangle between Eric and Xavier and Rogue because not rogue, sorry, um, Raven. Mystique, yeah. Raven, yeah. In that, like their allegiances to each other continue to. Sh- we don't need the teens running around, going to the mall, and having a debate about Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, I think they're just trying to play with. That's that's as much as they get out of the '80s setting. You're right. Yeah. They're like the mall is the place to be, <laughs> and uh, Return of the Jedi is in theaters because this is set in 1983. And then they, you know, they kind of, I think. Uh, toy with the fact that this is the third of a franchise like mm-hmm. oh well the third one's yeah. always the worst and I'm, yeah. I remember when this movie came out a lot of people were like well, why would you call yourself out in your own <laughs> movie be like this is not as good as first class in days of future past but whatever cut a slack look there's Oscar Isaac yelling about whatever <laughs> poor Oscar Isaacs I think he does a fine job in this but I read about like what they put him through I know I mean this that, I feel like that's sort of a good place to start so <laughs> This this movie we were saying the, the the sort of the tone of these films the prequel series as it were shifts with each movie. This is very much leaning into mythology. It's more of a sort of biblical epic, and the beginning of it t- uh, follows up the uh, the post credits and, and the end of Days of Future Past. That's the other thing that I think is cool. This is the this right around this point of the franchise is where they were like. They were full on leaning into the MCU, like post credits, teasing the next movie kind of thing. Uh, I think that really kind of started with the Wolverine and then I think concludes with this and Logan. Uh, I don't really remember anything with Dark Phoenix again. I genuinely, I do think there was a post credits in Dark Phoenix, but I think it was like within the film kind of thing. Probably. Yeah. And of course at the center of the, that flashback to ancient Egypt is Oscar Isaac as uh, well. I guess he's the new the new host that Apocalypse is being transferred into at the beginning of that film. Yeah. So what do what do you th- what do you think about that character? Because I know obviously now everybody loves Oscar Isaac and he's like the internet's boyfriend essentially, and uh, it's him, Keanu, Pedro Pascal, and there's probably a couple others. I he's gotten a lot of flack for this movie. I, I think he yeah. Go ahead. No, I just, I don't think any of the flack should I, be going his way right. at all. Like, it's, he's doing his best. He's wearing, like, so much machinery. It's, it's also, he, he, you know, he has a little bit of the Eddie Redmayne and Jupiter Ascending thing where he kind of whispers stuff, my, my child, and then he's yelling two seconds later. But I think it works better here because I do feel like this character 
is legitimately intimidating at times and also campy when he needs to be as well. How do you feel about Apocalypse as the, as the main threat of this movie where the stakes are as high as they've ever been? This is a world ending threat that X-Men doesn't usually get to that extent. I really liked it. I think the main reason I actually really like the fact that it's Apocalypse is because I'm finally like, oh, great, it's not about politics. Thank the Lord. It's not, we're not in the White House again, Um, which was a relief for me. But I think he's great. You're right, he can be intimidating because of all of the the effects, the, the physical costuming. He seems big and he seems imposing and he does seem godlike. He reminds me of like, and I mean this in a nice way, like a Buffy villain. Like he's yeah. got that, that vibe where he's on the screen. He just looks big. And then obviously I think they, they cast some tiny women because both to make him look bigger and Hollywood. Um, but so right. when he's sharing the screen with these women, like he does seem physically imposing. He does seem like a man out of time. And I think as a character, and again, I, I don't have a history with him in the comic books, but for me watching the film, I loved that realistically the, the thing that he does is he brings out the best of you whilst bringing out the worst of you like we see that in Xavier where he like channels into his power and he's like oh my god I've never felt power like this but then he panics he's like wait this could be wrong and I love that because I loved that for once um, Eric isn't the bad guy but that he's still the bad guy but that it's channeling all that he is and that you know he's just letting them live up to their full potential and they can choose whether they want that to be good or bad there's also an element of, uh, obviously, of deception in there as well, mm-hmm. where he's, you know, it's sort of the be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Yeah. And you see that, I think there's little, even in this crazy movie, there's little touches that I think are really, are really cool, where he's telling Storm, you know, we need to, this world needs to be cleansed. And mm-hmm. she's like, wait, what did you say? She's like, saved. Yeah. You know, he's framing it in a specific way to, to turn to play on everyone's uh i guess insecurities their desires their wishes their their hopes uh, but that's what i mean as well because realistically it is coming from internally them as well it's not just him exactly he's he's a master manipulator Mm -hmm. in addition to having the ability to weaponize the sand which is pretty badass (laughs) <laughs> when he's just in the I think it's it's in that scene with Storm where he just like the sand whips through and just decapitates like three guys. Mm-hmm. So what how did you feel about his very very much like a, a, it reminds me of the mummy in the 1999 mummy the way he's just sand is like uh part of his elemental c- kind of control. I like it very much like the mummy, but then it yeah. also strikes me of one of those real convenient. He has all the powers, but we're not <laughs> going to tell you what any of the powers are. Exactly. So depending on what the scene calls for, we can just decide how powerful or not powerful he is. Yeah. This movie gets away with a lot because of the broad strokes of that. Like, well, he's an ancient mutant and <laughs> everything's based powers. on him. Yeah, yeah. We won't tell you what powers. For for millennia, he's been transferring from body to body and collecting different abilities. We see at the very beginning, the the character that Oscar Isaac initially plays has the healing factor that Mm -hmm. later comes into play, spoilers, when Mm -hmm. uh, Mystique slits his throat and it just swoops, you know, closes right up. Mm -hmm. All of that, I think it's... It's just, there's a lot of ideas at play in this movie. There's a lot of random 
crazy stuff involving Apocalypse, the fact that he is essentially considering himself a god, the fact that they they tie in things where, like, the four horsemen, and uh, I love that line, which was in all the trailers, where Havoc is like, oh, he got that from the Bible, and then Moira's like, or the Bible got it from him. Mm-hmm. Like, that's <laughs> such a cool idea to throw into an X-Men movie. Yeah. And that's what I've always yeah. liked about, like, the X-Men as characters. Like, they have always been, like, great allegories for so many things, and it was nice to see them use that, but in a different way, so it's not just about, like, racial wars, because um, right. obviously that's such and that and like AIDS, I think was one of the other things that they were like a big allegory for, which are all really important. But you know, when you're on film eight, it's kind of nice to see them just take a different direction for once. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder. Part of me wonders if because it didn't lean into the the race or the sexuality or whatever that that allegory that that really feeds most of these movies. I wonder if that's part of why people are like, "Mm, I don't like this. This is different. Like they want something different, but then if you give them something too different, they complain about how different it is. (laughs) Uh, So I kind of feel like that's part of it. Obviously I'm not going to say this is the best film or the best written or that the script makes sense or that it doesn't take on about 12 different subplots and spend like maybe three to five minutes on some of them. (laughs) I think it's also as well though, very much struggling with the burden of the MCU. Yes. When we think, like, what were we at in 2016? We were gearing up towards... Civil War. Yes, it was Civil War. Yeah. So we've had three crossover films by that point, and we've got, like, 20-plus films. Brian Fuller and Simon Kinberg are still living in the age of the early noughties where you wrap up your film and you leave it open for a new one because we want more adventures with our characters but you wrap up the film and you kill the villain in the movie and they are still, you know, here we are 16 years later, they're still doing the same thing. And I think that's what a lot of kind of comic book film fans had an issue with where we've been watching the Avengers, seeing so much character growth, see them go through so many things, see the build up of this character Thanos get bigger and bigger and then you bring in this guy like Apocalypse and he's gone in one movie. I think people Mm -hmm. were like, oh, okay like he was so all-powerful that it took two hours to kill him um and i don't think that's fair on the movie because i think the movie is trying to be a self-contained movie realistically um but i think at the time that it came out it just wasn't standing out against the the dc films and the mcu films in the way that people would come to expect right yeah i think that that's right because not only that year, it was Civil War and then Batman v Superman. So mm-hmm. those two franchises were doing their their whole mashup thing. I think, and I think that's an, a good distinction to make too. Because if okay, when the MCU <laughs> introduces the X Men and brings Apocalypse into it, which you know they will do eventually, mm-hmm. they did Dark Phoenix twice in the span of like a decade or so. So <laughs> the same uh, writer, Simon Kinberg, wrote yeah. both. Ugh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really like Simon Kinberg. He's a lovely man. I've met him. He's really lovely. And he really loves the X-Men. And he really loves the Dark Phoenix storyline. But I just feel like he shouldn't have been allowed back to play with these again. Yeah, there is that. Um, <laughs> but when Apocalypse comes into the MCU, I feel like it, he will probably be a Thanos figure mm-hmm. where they introduce him in in a post credit scene of one movie. And then he lingers throughout a few movies until they have a big showdown sort of yeah. deal. 
I feel yeah. like he would be, if they start doing the Max Men movies in many phases within the phases of the MCU, I feel like one of them will be the Age of Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Which is the name of the comic book storyline, as I recall. And they, they probably just didn't do that here because this was the year after Age of Ultron. And they're like, well, we got to mix it up. But also I do respect, like, sometimes, obviously I did sit and watch five of these films, but that was more because I knew I'd be coming on here and speaking to you. And it's been so long since I've seen any of them. I think the last time I saw an X-Men movie was when I saw New Mutants in the cinema. And before mm-hmm. that, Dark Phoenix in the cinema. They're not not a franchise I return to very often in comparison to other comic book films. Um, But like, I do appreciate that for the most part, all of these films can just be enjoyed as one-offs. And I think we're kind of, you know, it's 2023 and we are, you know, superhero fatigue. I don't think (laughs) it is superhero fatigue. I think it's multi-arc story fatigue. So I appreciate that these films were like a little bit behind slash ahead of their game, just being like, this is a film. It is self-contained, has beginning, middle, and an end. Goodbye. I also think, I mean, obviously everybody's using the superhero fatigue term even more so now because mm-hmm. some of these movies are not performing well. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's almost superhero fatigue on like behind the scenes. Like yeah. most have you Thor Love and Thunder, The Flash, it's Shazam Fury. Like these are not particularly good movies they don't they're they're like fine at best and now when there's so many people are like well that's not good enough like yeah you gotta up your game a little and i'm really fascinated i cannot wait for like 20 years time when the expose comes out or the book or like i really hope something does come out not just about like what has been going on behind the scenes but also the impact that covid had on those films yeah like they covid affected everything but the film studios, because they were thinking about their bottom line, just rushed so many of these projects to keep their windows. And I think that is why so many of them are botched, because the amount of reshooting and retakes and stopping and starting, you can feel it when you watch it as an audience member. Um, and like I recently finished Secret Wars, the new Marvel show, mm. um, and I was lucky enough to go to an advanced screening of the first two episodes that a lot of the um, like cast and crew were at. And when I was in the bathroom before I left, I could hear some of the cast talking, and they were like, "They completely like that's not at all what we filmed." Like I'm really, they're like, "I don't really know where it's going." Like that was completely different to the bits that we filmed. So like, in edit, it's a completely different film to what the directors are filming on the set, and. It's just a mess. Yeah, it is. I think... uh, And I think this was the start? Yeah. Yeah, this could be. I... So, okay, we got to break it down. So... (laughs) Yeah, I'm going all over the place. Oscar Isaac's (laughs) Apocalypse is in this movie. We'll we'll get into some of the crazy stuff he does in a little bit. Uh, I guess let's start with the original... Mm -hmm. The, 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 you know, the first class cast. McAvoy's... Charles Xavier, the school is going well, everything is great there. Even though the school was destroyed between the first and the second film, it's suddenly completely <laughs> the back gets to destroyed normal. every movie. But like the school gets destroyed in this movie. That's very true. But like in the first film, he's like, I'm going to create a school. And I'm like, cool, let's see the creation of this school. Second movie. No, I, I gave up on the school. I'm very depressed. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> End of that movie. I'm going to get better and try again. Cool. This movie, he did get better. He's fine. Oh, oops, it blew up. <laughs> what? No, it's, a, it's a little funny to me because it's kind of one of the issues I have with Spider-Man No Way Home is that it took him three movies to kind of become the Spider-Man we know and love. Mm-hmm. 
in this this franchise trilogy up to this point at least it basically takes three movies for the x-men as as a thing to really start (laughs) so like x-men first class was not at all the first class it was (laughs) 20 years before uh, xavier actually took things seriously (laughs) i didn't ever think about that but that is so depressingly true He couldn't see. I think what it is is they they couldn't lean into the actual X Men as a superhero team until he went bald. They had to. Yeah. They had to, which was a big thing in the marketing. That final shot, which is the final shot of this movie, is the but final shot of all, all the trailers. Over the poster, all over <laughs> yeah, with the poster. bald McAvoy, and it's one of those things. Like, did we really care that much about learning how he lost his hair? I guess so. I mean, as a failed educator myself, I do blame it all on my luscious locks. If I'd have just shaved my head, I would have been the best teacher ever. There you go. It was holding you back. <laughs> I I do think McAvoy does, you know, the best he can. I don't feel like he has much of an arc in this movie other than what you said, which is he's finally like moving forward and having the X-Men be the sort of covert ops mutant superhero team that they are in the rest of the movies later. He's sort of just a set piece to set yeah. up Jean Grey, which yeah. is a shame. Yeah. And I can never decide. And I've only seen Dark Phoenix once in the cinemas. And I remember, again, not thinking it deserved all of the hate it got. But mostly I think I remember thinking it was just very dull. But, like, you could definitely feel like the original three very much no longer wanted to be there by the time Dark Phoenix came around. You could see the boredom and, like, that that they really don't want to be in the scenes. I couldn't decide in this one, was McAvoy already a bit like kind of over this and I don't really want to do it anymore? Or was it just that they weren't interested in his character anymore? I think it's that Brian Singer and Simon Mm -hmm. Kimberg were so focused on bringing, well, let's see, who do we, who do we meet for the first time in this movie? Gene, Cyclops, Storm, Nightcrawler, Angel, Psylocke. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like so many new the characters. cast of X two and X three. Like yeah, they're the much. only they're the only characters they know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like they're so focused on bringing those characters in that it's it's if this movie has one underlying problem that's that it's overstuffed. Like mm-hmm. you don't need all of those characters in here. Or had you not killed off all the other yeah. movies, you could have used some of those guys from the previous movies again. Yeah, and it it does it does a complete disservice to the characters of the previous films, and it does a disservice to these films because, like, I really like Storm. Um, I've forgotten the name of the actress, but I really enjoy that that actress. Um, yeah. Also, in Barbie, yeah, um, Alexandra Ship. Yes, Alexandra Ship. I think I think this yeah, is probably great. the first time I saw her, but I think she's brilliant, and I think she gets the most screen time of them all. Like Olivia Munn, bless her, just kind of mostly poses and pouts and waves her yeah. arm stick things around. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just a disservice to all the characters because it's so overstuffed. I think the only character that really gets a decent arc is Mystique. And even that, you see her go from a young, naive kind of person who needs to learn to take a stand and learn what side she's on in the first film to then going to grappling with the consequences of that in her second film to suddenly being the mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it is trying to be like, well, 20 years have passed, but it's like, it doesn't feel like 20 years to the audience because not enough within the film's universe tells us that 20 years has passed. So I'm confused as to why suddenly she's mentoring all these kids. 
Yeah, it's it's also Jennifer Lawrence clearly not a fan of the makeup and who who can blame her? Yeah, absolutely. So they're 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 just like manufacturing reads like the whole mystique as a freedom fighter and her not wanting to, to, uh, or, or, you know, being perceived as a mutant hero and her not wanting to be seen in her natural state is just, you know, a a contrivance so that Jennifer Lawrence doesn't have to wear the makeup is basically what's going on. And I I did like the idea of her being like a bit of a freedom fighter in that, like she goes around trying to find young mutants to protect them. I thought that was in keeping with her character, but her eagerness to suddenly go back to savior to save Eric and then teach or be the new teacher for all the young'uns just, yeah, felt very contrived. And like you say, a lot of it was just around the makeup. And I feel for her because by that point, she was probably an Oscar winner. Yes, yeah, she was an Oscar winner by that She was point. an Oscar winner before Days of Future Past. Oh, God, so yeah. Like, so she's yeah. like, please just... Get me I, out of here. I yeah. have the Hunger Games also. like <laughs> Bless her. And there's that great moment where Hank uh, Raven says something like, "Oh, I'm in Eric. I'm here for Eric. He's in real trouble." And then Hank's like, "Isn't he always like? Yeah. <laughs> Does only do this every decade or so? Like we don't see you, and then suddenly you're like, oh, Eric and Charles, we have to deal with something for a day and a half, and then go our separate ways for ten years." Oh God, yeah. If I saw <laughs> if I saw an ex once every ten years because they wanted me to go and help them sort out the guy who betrayed me, shot yeah. my best friend, and also ran away with my girlfriend. I bet they exactly. go away. <laughs> and I, I like her arc. I like I especially like the way that it that it informs Storm's arc. Mm-hmm. That she looks up, which which is kind of a, a real dead giveaway that this is completely rewriting the timeline from the original movies because that yeah. Halle Berry was not like a you know basing her her heroic journey off of uh, Rebecca Romaine's but and that's, that's the biggest issue I think that yeah. you have between the suddenly being a prequel and in the same arc as the originals because the mystique that we see Rebecca Romaine running around with Ian McKellen. Great. They have great chemistry, but she's very much that stereotypical, you know, I know she's not blonde, blue and redhead, but the blonde bimbo kind of wench who helps and is the the lackey. Whereas in this film, and rightly so, she's very much her own character and she is a partner to Eric or to Charles when, depending on who she's with. And that's (laughs) the biggest... Yeah, depending on the moment. Depending on the moment. But that's the biggest issue with them when you're saying that these are direct prequels. Because, like, Mystique in the originals has no agency. Yeah. Ian McKellen's um, Magneto has no respect for her other than a fondness. Whereas in these films, rightly, again, so they treat her as almost equal um, other than her naivety. So it it kind of, I'm like, so sorry, Art? Are they a prequel or are is is it a new telling or are well, we now it's like forced history? off? Now it's like because of Days of Future Past. Now they're because yeah. re- spoilers for De- Dark Phoenix. Mystique is out of that movie pretty fast, and do they you know kill it, Mystique? They do kill Mystique in like the first ten minutes. Oh no, not in the first ten minutes. I'm sure she's in one of the later battles. I don't think so based on what oh. i remember it's pretty early it's yeah, like i'd the, forgotten that until you said it and i was like i do remember that she dies <laughs> it's like I, it's the moment where where they're everybody's sort of after gene it's what motivates eric to go after gene and like kind of hunt scene. her down because it's the yeah. big scene in the house right i believe so it's, so that's yeah. not in the first 10 minutes that's about halfway 
but okay, you're right. It's, it, like it is in the, it's probably in the first hour, hour and a half. I don't think you see much of her. And then no, she's I out. think she kind of only turns up for that big fight. And then it's yeah. to say, I think they're like, we had to call the big guns in and then she right. kills her. And they're like, oh no. Yeah. That, that wow. was meant to be, um, so spoilers for your Dark Phoenix episode, that was meant to be kind of towards the end of the film. And then the test screenings went so badly, they had to add in the whole section with the train um, oh because they didn't have a big thugged act CGI fest and test audiences didn't like it. So right. they had to add in all the train stuff. So, you know, enjoy that when you get to that. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but so, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it we are forked off from the mm-hmm. uh, the other mm-hmm. film, so we're in a new timeline. Essentially, so I guess yeah, point. it works. Yeah, it works. It just it just changes the, the dynamics of the characters it's a lot. Messy. Yeah, it's very messy. And also Mystique's arc, her whole like we all need to own who we are, and she goes blue again. I'm like, isn't this just mutant and proud all over again? Like, didn't yeah. we just do this a couple? Wasn't that your arc in the first in the like the the first but- of these movies? They all, I saw like a review of this film and it was like, every movie, the mutants are like, we're sad because being a mutant, it's hard. The end. And that's it. Like Charles's storyline every time is a crisis of faith that he gets over. Eric's storyline is I'm tortured. I don't know how to live. I must get revenge. Maybe I feel bad about the revenge I have wrought. And Mystique's (laughs) is mutant and proud. Maybe not mutant and proud. No, no, mutant and proud. And that's it. I will say though, even though it feels very been there, done that, I do like where where we, uh, where Ms. Magneto's story early on. I mean, he has a he has sort of a he has his own story, and then he just becomes one of the horsemen and is just kind of standing around a lot. Yeah, I got really annoyed when I was like when it when I watched it that they'd written him in a wife and child just to kill them because it's like right. Magneto or Eric has gone through so much trauma already. I know. I don't think you really write, needed to write in new trauma to yeah. make him feel trauma. But then you're watching Michael Fassbender and you're like, let him do all of these scenes because he is just such a phenomenal actor that I instantly was like, no, wait, no, this is this is perfect acting. I want to see him anguished. I want to well, see you- him angry. I want to see him grappling with consequence once you he has that scene where he's putting his daughter to bed and he's she's like oh she's like what happened to your parents he's like oh they were taken from me and she's like will you be taken away no you know i've learned this song from my parents and one day you could sing it to your kids kind of thing i'm like oh no this kid's dead. <laughs> I'm like, it's very soon but then like you said it are the the wife and daughter essentially fridged in this movie yeah. yes Yes, hundred percent. Hundred percent. They're there to be their cannon fodder, basically. However, however, I'm not saying that was a wise storytelling choice. However, it informs Magneto's perspective that, like, mm-hmm. he he leans into being a criminal, and you know, causing wreaking havoc on the humans and protecting mutants. He is branded like a war criminal, public enemy number one. He gets locked up in the Pentagon trying to save JFK because he gets framed. Because JFK was a mutant, apparently. Which is where Matthew Vaughn wanted to open the movie originally. Right. Yeah. Which would have been great. That would have been really good. And then he leave, he he changes his name, lives an honest life, falls in love, has a kid, and then uses his powers. And you could see the look on his face. He has not used his powers in a long time when he does that. And um, he does it to save a life. I know. And <laughs> it's less. so sad. And I, like, that's, I'd almost rather have almost had that whole film. 
Like, it's completely unnecessary. But again, because it's one of the few times the writing is a little bit honest and a little bit good, and because of Fassbender's wonderful performance, I actually would have happily stayed there longer because that was interesting to me. How does, you know, the most powerful and villainous X-Men you know, mutants live an honest life. And like we say, then he, he finally figures it out and he tries to do something good. And that's, again, what he continues to be punished for. Um, it's just, yeah, a shame that then it just gets lost by the end of the movie because, like you say, he does yeah. just become one of the horsemen, which is clever. And I did like that. Like, I like that he can also be manipulated. But so much is going on in the last 40 minutes that, you know, what does he do at the end? He kind of just wanders away. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. He he, uh, he steps in in the pivotal part in the battle and slams the steel beams down, making an X, which, come on, as an X-Men <laughs> fan, I'm like, all right, I got you. It's a big X. That's cool. Uh, and then uh, helps defeat um, Apocalypse. And then he helps build the, the, the school with Gene at the end, which is cool. Oh, nice. And then, and then pieces out. He's like, all right, until another 10 years when yeah. something happens in the next movie. Well, because I was going to say, I don't know if you, like, is the wife and daughter from the comics? I don't know if you, I meant to look I that up. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, which is, because I think I would have liked it more if it was, like, canon. Right. Uh, because I think it really informs, you know, why do I keep wanting to talk about Dark Phoenix? I think it's because I didn't watch it. I feel guilty. Um, <laughs> but like where we find him in Dark Phoenix, he's created that mutant island. I think it is very informative that like he's kept, he tried to be against the humans and failed. He tried to help the humans and he was punished. So off he toddles to be on an island just for mutants because that's the only place that he can live. And I like that for him yeah. until, you know, they ruin it. <laughs> to what you were saying earlier, like first class started development as an X-Men Origins Magneto. It's not, if, if they had this sort of MCU might behind them, I could have totally seen an X-Men Origins Magneto or an X-Men mm. movie, Magneto movie dealing with more of this. And then he's kind of wrapped yeah. into the apocalypse story. I think that would have been really satisfying. Very satisfying. Because Basically, we all we're all building to that that scene where Fastpender is like, you know, snaps, has his daughter's necklace, and then takes out those guys because all he needs is a little bit of metal. We've seen it before. And then you get that moment where he's screaming, like, is this what I am? Like you really feel Fastbender, I will say, even in the worst of these movies, McAvoy and Fastbender, especially. So good. So good. Even if Lawrence and Holt are just kind of there and doing mm. their thing. They don't drive the emotion of it in quite the same way because McAvoy and and Fassbender, like Stuart and McKellen, they're the heart of these movies. And mm-hmm. if they don't, if their relationship is not at the center, if they're not, you know, uh, giving it their all, it, it sort of falls apart. And I think, and I love that they respect yeah. that, and they do, they do give it their all, regardless of how poor the storylines and the writing yeah. gets. Exactly. Like I, I respect that for them. I appreciate that as an audience member. And it becomes a, and it remains sort of an ongoing through line through these movies, their friendship. And mm-hmm. you know, in, in here, there's that, there's the uh, restating of those lines from X2 or no, from the end of the first X-Men actually, where he says, you know, what do you, don't you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, worried about when someone's going to come to that school looking for trouble. 
And he's like, what do you do when you wake up to that? And they're restating those lines that closed mm-hmm. the original X-Men movie, sort of bringing everything full circle and making me more annoyed than ever that this wasn't the end because <laughs> this should have been, there shouldn't have been a Dark Phoenix. Like I love trilogies and this would have mm-hmm. worked as a, yeah. a trilogy closer. Do you feel like had Dark Phoenix not been a thing, do you think this serves as a solid sort of final chapter of the first class trilogy? No, but that's because it doesn't feel like a trilogy to me at all. I think that's my main issue. I definitely think Dark Phoenix does not feel like a satisfying end to anything. Right. And it, it does also feel like they're opening up things that were tied off. So I see what you mean. Like this this could absolutely end. I think for me, though, it doesn't feel like a satisfying trilogy end because it, it it's Days of Future Past just doesn't fit with First Class to me. And so then Apocalypse is half of each and is struggling. And I just think there is a really unsatisfying trilogy of three fine films, you know, one definitely better than others, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think the whole trilogy is unsatisfying because they keep retreading the same arcs. There's no overall arc across the trilogy. It's They all go their separate ways at the end of each film. And then 10 years later, they all regroup, go through a thing and then split up again. <laughs> it doesn't feel cohesive. Right. Um but if this had been the last X-Men film, and it was for me today in my watch, then I was happy with that. As we said, I felt no urge to go and watch the fourth film. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, it, it does sort of bring us back around to Jean and Storm and Cyclops. We yeah. uh, we get the callback. And, call we, get, back. and yeah, we, we yeah, full circle. We know where they're all going. Exactly. We get the callback to the uh, Charles is like, you know, I told you when we first met that there was more to you to first class. Obviously Moira gets her memories back. I was Speaking so, <laughs> so pleased Moira was back. That was my biggest anger with Days of Future Past. I was really, really annoyed that there was no Moira. Loved yeah, her. I, I, they don't really ever know what to do with her beyond once they bring her in, in first class also, honestly. In first class and in this movie, they bring her in. She sort of uh, gets up to speed with Charles. They have a little bit of chemistry. And then she's just kind of there for a lot of it. I feel like both of those movies don't... And again, that's the internal struggle with the X-Men franchise, right? Is that they have 10, 15, 20 characters and they're like, uh, everybody gets three minutes of screen time except you, Jackman, if you happen to be there. Go. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing for me is I adore Rose Byrne, so I'm just always happy to see Rose Byrne do Same. whatever. She can just be in anything <laughs> she likes. No, um, I agree. But, I love but her. But I think this. the thing for me was it just felt really unsatisfying to me that there was not even a mention of her in Days of Future Past. Yeah. And she's such a brilliant performer. And I do think that like, she's so pivotal to the first half of First Class, but you're right, that second half, she's mostly just standing in the background going like, oh, no. You know, and occasionally picking up a phone to the people that aren't talking to them. Um, So, yeah, and it's kind of actually the exact same in this. She's really interesting and a useful person in the first half. And then they completely forget about her in the second half because she doesn't have powers. So she can't be involved in the giant CGI fight. Well, I mean, Hank McCoy has powers. We see him as his beast form for like the last third of the movie, maybe. Mm -hmm. And he also doesn't have that much to do in these movies. I feel like it's... It's strange well, how many characters they have. He and was how always a science man. Them. Even yeah, that's true. But I think even in first class, he doesn't do much because he's the science man. He's the brains. So I think you know he's just needed to do the like spy stuff. Like here's the cool gadgets that I made. <laughs> 
But again, I think you are right. Like considering all of the characters we have to play with, and it's the problem that runs through all three of these films, like we said at the start about killing them all off. They basically just like, here's a really cool character. Look at all the fun things they can do. Okay, they're done now. Goodbye. Like it, it is almost not as bad as Wolverine, but a bit like a Wikipedia summary. Like let's introduce each of these characters in a really cool set piece, show off their skills. And then at the end, everyone's just going to shoot some lights into a big thing and then we'll all go home. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about the the horsemen a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already obviously talked about Magneto, mm-hmm. who uh, who has the I think the movie's sole f bomb, which is fun <laughs> when the Apocalypse shows up in full on like Tony Robbins motivational speaker mode, where he's like, "All right, everybody, I'm going to bring out the best of you and amplify your powers and all this other stuff." And he's like, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> that I love that uh, again. Fastbender, I'm all all about all about his performance in these movies. Storm, we already mentioned Alexandra Ship, really good as that character. No notes. Actually has, no notes. Yeah, actually has a Kenyan accent as opposed to Halle Berry kind of having one in the little bit in the first one and then not really in the second. And by the third, they completely drop it. Angel is like kind of a nothing of a character in this movie, yeah. unfortunately. To and, the point that I got confused and thought, was he not the other um, brother? Um, oh, yeah. Cyclops's brother, the Summers, and then the Summers, and I had to Google yeah, and I was Havoc, like, yeah, Alex. yeah, I was, I thought he was Havoc, and then I was like, no, no, he's not Havoc. That's Havoc. He's just another blonde guy. Um, <laughs> he's actually funny enough from a British TV soap because I remember when the film came out, everyone was like, what is um, I can't his name was like Ben Hardy, Mike. I think, isn't it? Yeah, his name in the soap though was Michael Beale. He was like, there's a fame, infamous British show character called Ian Beale, and he is his son. So everyone was like, why is Ian Beale's son in the X Men? It was a whole the poor guy. Um, it derailed all of his press. Um, but yeah, he was very nothing other than having some cool wings. They really didn't do anything with that character. And also, we saw that character in X Three as a child. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> he didn't do much with that character in that movie either. She's got cool wings, man, which, you know, I get that. I I, I like to see him fly. It was cool. And then you already mentioned Psylocke, Olivia Mm -hmm. Munn as Psylocke, who is, I was watching, after I watched this movie for the podcast, I watched some of the features on the Blu-ray. Yes, I own this on Blu-ray. Amazing. And and Brian Singer was describing the sort of mindset of, you know, with Apocalypse and the and the Horsemen looking at cults and how cults usually have mm-hmm. a political faction, which would be Magneto, a military faction, which would be Angel, who's a, very much a fighter and is kind of a soldier mm-hmm. in this, a youth component, which would Storm, who's sort of like on the streets trying to, you know, get her life together and started, et cetera. And then uh, the a sexual component. This is, mm. I'm quoting Ryan Singer. And that is Olivia Munn's Psylocke. And I'm like, that checks out because well, I was just all, thinking that's so smart it. and so clever. And I didn't, I wish I'd have seen any of that come through in the film until you said sexual right. component. And I was like, Oh, that came through that yes. one, that one they made sure came through. Exactly. Exactly. That one. I mean, she looks great in that outfit, but that's Stunning. pretty much all they do with Psylocke yeah. in this. Uh, and, and even saying that, yeah, good. I think like Olivia Munn was very game for this film from what I 100%. can remember of the promotion. She really was excited about it and she, bless it. Like, I don't, I wonder if she did film more, but they gave her nothing to do. 
They yeah, they really didn't. It's it's a bummer because that that character is has its fans among the comic book community mm-hmm. and does you wouldn't know much about her other than she makes cool little like laser sword things with That's her. That's literally the only thing I know about her. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. It's yeah. So I do like the the once the one scene that always stands out, and I think I've seen people sort of poking fun at it. That I think is pretty funny is when Magneto's having a whole telepathic conversation with Charles, and Apocalypse is just in the background, like building everybody's armor, like getting them all suited up, like he's got a real eye for presentation. Um, he's like branding he came, everybody, and it's really funny. He came from ancient Egypt. If there's one thing I do remember about learning about Egyptians, those guys really cared about presentation. They looked great. Their whole alphabet was imagery. Like, I buy into that. They really cared about visuals. No, it's, yeah, it's one of those, that's what I'm saying. Like, this movie is best enjoyed if you know that it's kind of ridiculous Mm -hmm, and you mm -hmm. know that it's kind of campy and you know that it's kind of messy and then you just lean into that, honestly. Kind of like Out of the Shadows. That's what I was saying. Like, it's so funny. We're talking about back-to-back movies that are kind of, I similarly stand up for. I have sort of a, I feel like most people that are fans of this franchise, like there's one and I tweeted, you, you, may, you saw my, my poll mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a handful of movies in this franchise that most people are like, oh, that one sucks. And I feel like most fans of this franchise, there's at least one that they're like, I don't know. That one's all right. Leave that one alone. Like, yeah. And for me, it's this one. I think this movie's kind of fun. But I, I think that's one of the reasons, like, so I remember after we spoke about Out of the Shadows, like, we kind of mentioned this, like, X-Men and this one, because I was like, exactly that. I'm like, I really yeah. don't think, like it's half as bad as people say it is and it's fun to like play around and just be a bit more comic and it's funny like I went back and found my original review which is quite long and like it's not a very well written review but I was really much more positive about it on my first watch than I was on this watch though I still enjoyed it but one of the things at the end of my review um is that in, I, was, I just took start taking shots about Batman versus Superman and I was like saying how it was really nice that at times Apocalypse could have a darker tone without me being forced to watch sequence after sequence of Clark Kent and Lois Lane dramatically staring in the rain <laughs> <laughs> and I was like okay fair enough I was like I don't think this has a dark tone really in it at all but no. I also think that's one of the reasons because God, I hated Batman versus Superman and I hated most of the DCU films because they all had that misery to them, which people are like, it's dark and it's gritty. And I have a place in my heart for silliness. And I think a bunch of superheroes running around looking like animals or wearing spandex <laughs> is silly, but also yeah. really cool. And it can be both. It can be both. Exactly. No, I think that's I think that's right. I feel like that's right. And and there's a lot of crazy decisions that this movie does. Not only having an Egyptian god as your main villain, but there's Apocalypse uses Cerebro, connects to Charles to connect to Cerebro to get everyone across the world to launch all their missiles and bombs. He's like, no more superpowers. Like, come on. Do you know what? As a pacifist, I can stand by that. Yeah. And I just saw Oppenheimer a couple of weeks ago. No one should have nuclear weapons. Maybe Apocalypse was right. He is the leader we need. He, he takes Magneto to Auschwitz 
to just to let him like basically obliterate it. Things like that. that. Like there's some crazy, (laughs) there's some crazy. Yeah, I know. Actually, I'm making, I'm sort of talking myself into being on Apocalypse Aside as we're going on here. I'm like, you're getting rid of all things that shouldn't be there. So good, good call, uh, Apocalypse. (laughs) Um, Just, I don't know. There's a psychic showdown with Charles and Apocalypse. Do you know what though? I did really like the bit in the psychic showdown that's all taking place in the house where he's like, you're going to need a bigger house. And then he's just massive. (laughs) I love shit like that. I love when yeah. someone's really big in a tiny set because I just really like set design. So right. I was like, this is cool. I like that he's really large. <laughs> Such a child. All of that stuff. There's so much. This this movie has, in a franchise that has lots of wild swings, this movie has several of them. <laughs> I guess my point. Like, they blow up the school again. You know, they, they have another Quicksilver sequence, which we should talk about. Oh. He gets... A little more screen time this time. So I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Evan Peters Quicksilver, obviously a highlight of both of the movies he's in. I, would I say, was right? so surprised how little he was in Days of Future Past because yeah. I remember just being, I was a big Evan Peters fan anyway, but and I was a big Quicksilver in Age of Ultron as well. So I remember yeah. just being so taken with him and really surprised he just never came back. So when he turned up in this, I was like, yay! <laughs> and he shows up just in the nick of time. The kids are coming back from the mall. <laughs> He sees the school about to explode. He saves everybody but Havoc. And what I what I appreciate about that sequence is is are two things. One, the eurythmic sweet dreams are made he of this. He just has such great music taste. Perfect choice for music. Again, very much of the time that this mm-hmm. film is set. And also, they don't do the exact same thing. Like, they don't visualize his powers the same way as they do in Days of Future Past. That was very much, the room is frozen and he's moving around you know, adjusting everything in the room. This was more like he zips in there quickly. Mm-hmm. The part of the explosion happens. He zips into another room and then, put, you know, it's sort of like phases through the the destruction of, of the school. Mm-hmm. How did you Which feel about cool. how this compared to last time? So cool. I think it's a little bit, you can look at it in cynical way and say it's very self-indulgent because he became a bit of a fan favourite and it's a completely unnecessary sequence and there was no need for the school to blow up because we know it gets rebuilt so the only reason they blow the school up is so that they can do this sequence but I don't care because it's a really cool (laughs) sequence and I really enjoyed it it's so much fun and I like you know the silliness that it brings out with the goldfish and the dog and I liked you know I, I think I've, I've watched nine seasons of the CW's Flash, so it was nice to see, like, well-done speedster stuff happening rather uh-huh. than just, I move my arms really fast. Um, <laughs> and so that was lovely. And I just think he's, like, a really underutilised character. Like I say, I, I thought he actually had such a bigger part in both of the films that he's in. I sort of do enjoy that he doesn't overstay his welcome. I think that's smart. Um, and I like that he gets to go to the final battle this time. And I like that he doesn't confront Magneto about being his son. Um, but I just loved it. Yeah, the whole sequence is so much fun. Sucks that he didn't save um, Havoc, you know. Yeah. Awkward. Um, <laughs> love, I love the sucks that he didn't save, uh, what's his name? That guy. <laughs> that guy. The other, the other, the other white the guy. Other brother. Hair, somebody's brother. I don't <laughs> well, know. Well, the honest thing is that he was actually such a yeah. cool character. Like, he wasn't he was. in Days of Future Past at all. Like, he's really important in First Class. And I don't think he he's He had, in- like, a cameo in Days of Future. He was in yeah. the 
the uh, the army camp that Mystique oh, sort of yeah. yeah infiltrates yeah. But it's like, and then they bring him back in this just to kill him off again. And it's like, for heaven's sakes, like he's cool. He would have been much cooler than Cyclops. Um, so that's a shame. Um, but also I do love that even the film has the same opinion that I have because he's like, what about my brother? And they're like, oh, I thought I saved everyone. They're like, oh, he was close to the bust. Oh, very sad. Never spoken about again. <laughs> it's also kind of tonally jarring if you're like, sweet dreams, amazing. and then two seconds like, oh, he's dead. We're sad. Dead, dead. Like, wow, let's keep going. Weird. Now we're all going to go on in a pe- like a helicopter. Woo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> Uh, let's see. I, I had a couple other notes here. Oh, this the Phoenix thing. So we get early signs of the Phoenix sort of mm-hmm. already happening here. Jean has a nightmare. She's like melting her walls. Uh, we get a nice foundation for the, the sort of mentor relationship she already has with Charles, which it's not hard to extrapolate 20 years on that and be like, oh, that's Famke Jansen and Patrick Stewart. Like, mm-hmm. so I, I appreciate that kind of thing. Do you think they do enough? I guess like to pretend... Let's pretend Dark Phoenix is, has not <laughs> confirmed. It's do you do you feel like they handled the Phoenix storyline well enough in this movie, or do you think that they should have left it out or leaned into it more? How do you feel about the balance with that? I think I like it for the most part. Um, the thing that I liked most about this was actually her relationship with Scott because yeah. I never really I adore James Marsden, but I never bought into his relationship with Femke um, Jansen in the first three films. I don't think it helped that obviously she's so horny for Wolverine. Um but like I I, felt, I mean can we blame her? Oh no. Like if you if you told me I could have James Marsden or Hugh Jackman, I think I'd just evaporate out of the stress of having to commute. <laughs> so I don't I don't envy the lady. I mean what a choice to be given. Right. <laughs> But I never felt their chemistry, so it was nice in this to see that they both started out as awkward outcasts who didn't know how to control their powers. That I was like, oh, so that's how they connect. That's how they form a lifelong bond and partnership. So I was like, I like that they that felt nice to me. I think I did like that they brought in the Dark Phoenix stuff. I I think it was fairly cool as like a big ending, and helps I think with the thing that like you said they don't really ever start the X Men. And whereas yeah. this proves that you don't have to be Magneto or Xavier to save the day. Like, the kids can actually save it themselves. I think that was nice. I think what I would have loved, I don't even mind that they did Dark Phoenix, even though Dark Phoenix, the film, is a mess. And there's so, so many reasons why that film is a mess. Um, but I think there needed to be a film in between. Because, yeah. and I know this, I think that's the problem as well. It keeps being like, and 10 years have passed. But I'm like, you don't show us the 10 <laughs> years have passed. We don't feel like 10 years have passed. Um, so I think I would have loved another film in the middle because in this, she's so young, she's so scared. She doesn't know what she's doing. It would have been lovely to then see a film in the middle where she comes into her powers in a good way. So then in Dark Phoenix where she goes bad, you want, you can see the difference. Whereas mm. I just don't feel like we ever get to see the difference that would have been kind of cool too because then this could have been the final chapter of a trilogy focusing on uh charles eric and raven Mm -hmm. as sort of the 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 like fulcrum of that like of that dynamic Mm -hmm. it's like there's the two friendships and then there's raven always in the middle and then the beginning of a trilogy focused more on the the og uh gene and and storm and and, uh, cyclops and stuff 
Yeah, like I, I think by the point that we got to, which is why, again, Dark Phoenix feels really rushed, the Disney buyout of Fox, the MCUification of everything, just audiences getting a bit bored of these characters because people didn't like Apocalypse and thing, and the the X Men spin off, the Wolverine spin offs weren't doing particularly great with audiences either. Like, I can see why they didn't try and do more and why mm. Dark Phoenix felt so rushed, but it is a shame because there are so many stories to tell in this universe, and despite it being a franchise that has somewhere between nine and 15 films, depending on which ones you count. Right. Like, there's so little done. Like, I can't think of another franchise that has this many films that tells so few stories. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's to the point that there's so many characters in this that I was just going to bulk all of them together. How do you feel about the performances of Ty Sheridan, Sophie Turner, Cody (laughs) Smith-McPhee, uh, Etc. As those other characters, because as, as we said, I think Alexandra Ship is the standout, and mm-hmm. I feel like the rest of them are fine. I guess La- Lana Condor as Jubilee. Just why <sighs> she did she disappear <laughs> to bring her back? She was so yeah. cool, and I love Lana Condor. Oh, yeah. she's infuriating. And um, I don't even think she turns up in Dark Phoenix. Just she's not. I checked because I yeah. What a crazy. waste. And. Um, Sophie Turner, I'm not convinced, is actually that strong of an actress, so she wouldn't have been my choice of casting. I've not, I've, I, I've seen her bits of her in Game of Thrones. I've never watched Game of Thrones all the way through, but I never really saw her do much in the bits of Game of Thrones I watched. Maybe she comes into her own towards the end. Don't love her in these films. And then I saw her small part in uh, Do Revenge, which you know, hilarious, but she's in it for like five minutes. And yeah. um, Ty Sheridan. Pretty cool. I actually like the different take on Cyclops because James Marden is everyone's lovable golden retriever boyfriend. So it was nice to, you know, see that he was an XD teen. And I think I quite like Ty Sheridan as an actor. Cody Smith McPhee, very cute. Nightcrawler's adorable though. I adore like you can't just you can't be mad at Nightcrawler. <laughs> yeah. And it's nice to finally get Nightcrawler in one of these movies again after X2. It sort of felt to me though that it completely retconned all of the work and that upset me because I really like his introduction in X2 so yeah like you're right it was great to see him but it was a shame because I really liked the work that Alan Alan, Cumming yeah Alan Cumming does in X2 and it's a very different take which is still cool Um, and yeah yeah, like I say he's adorable so I can't be mad I I prefer to look at the timeline as well maybe now he just Nightcrawler just crosses paths with the X Men way earlier, and so he's part of the the team from the beginning. Does I, you he know. not also die in Dark Phoenix? Oh God, I don't think so. I hope not. Okay, okay. Oh man, no, now no. you're making me worried, Claire. Maybe he's just severely injured. Maybe. Well, that's the other thing in that movie too. Isn't Quicksilver injured like early on? And, and that's what I like, just remember oh, there just being out. a lot of destruction, and yeah, a lot of them are out. So I'm like, is it that Nightcrawler is killed, or is he just? taken out yeah i don't remember oh boy well i'll get there next like in a couple i'm gonna have to rewatch it i don't want to (laughs) Uh, same and you know and i have talk about another podcast um let's see so other than that uh i like that it's gene letting the phoenix loose magneto helps and then storm jumps in is what's actually finishes Mm -hmm. off uh, apocalypse and his whole all is revealed thing what do you think he means when he says all is revealed, his dying words. That was to me about 
Dark Phoenix. Yeah. Like, she's the like, ultimate oh, power. She's going to be the apocalyptic event that takes over and destroys the humans. This movie really, you know how, so when I was growing up in the 90s, I had the like the X-Men trading cards and mm-hmm. I watched, you know, everything. They had the power rankings, like intelligence and strength and blah, 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 different categories. This to me feels like X-Men power rankings, the movie. Like, yes. To the point that I, uh, uh, I don't remember who it is. I think it's Moira. Somebody says, oh, you know, it's not, it's not Magneto. There's someone more powerful mm-hmm. talking about apocalypse and it cuts to Jean Grey. So it's yes. basically this movie's whole the, the question looming over this movie is who's the most powerful apocalypse Magneto Xavier and then they're like haha it's Jean Grey the Phoenix which is why like I I, I got why they went straight into Phoenix after this I just right. would have loved if there'd have just been one movie in between and I, I totally get why they couldn't do it but that could have just been so interesting with also her having to grapple with the fact the burden of being the most powerful mutant to live. Like, yeah, I would have loved to have seen that arc rather than it just being a quick, oh, I'm powerful, oh, I explode. <laughs> Pretty much. And, and it's cool. I, I like that uh, Apocalypse, we were saying the sand earlier, he has sort of a similar sort of dusting effect that reminded me of what Gene does in Last Stand. Mm-hmm. So there was that, that sort of visual nod as well to linking those two characters. That was kind of cool. Mm. Uh, let's see. So obviously we get some sentinels in the danger room at the end. I love that callback. Uh, I love not the, the sentinels. I really I do too. wish we had more of them in the franchise. I have a feeling that'll be something the MCU will key in on a little bit more. So I don't know how much you are into like the wider stuff, but did you ever watch the show The Gifted? I didn't. I heard mostly good things though. Yeah, like it was messy because it was like a weekly network TV show. It was on FX, at least here in the UK. But it was like it had Sentinels in and it was really like clever. It had Magneto's daughter and um, not Wanda, the green one. can't remember what her name was now. He's got a surprising amount of a kids. amount of kids. So many kids. <laughs> Which is movie nods too. It's like you have yeah. more family than you know. <laughs> But yeah, that really has a lot of sentinels and really like looks at that side of X-Men. And I, I kept thinking of that while I was watching these because I think I really liked that storyline. And so I do hope that when they come into the MCU that that is something that they go with. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that'll probably be. Um, I did notice too, this is a, not the first X-Men movie to deal with transferring consciousness from one body to another because apparently Charles did that in Last Stand at the... Post credit scene, kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's how they'd be like, I'm still here. I'm back somehow. Because that always, I actually only watched Last Stand properly for the first time yesterday. I had seen okay. it like Frankenstein throughout the years where it had been on TV and people had posted bits of it. Um, that's how it was made, it seems, too. So. Definitely so. Um, I also, when I was a teacher, I taught film studies and the exam topic was superhero movies. So I purposely would pick films like Last Stand that I hadn't seen as the... Um, like practice exam bits so that the kids would, I'd I'd like have to prove that the kids knew what they were talking about because I hadn't taught them it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like I always remember watching Days of Future Past being like, wait, but I thought everyone told me he died. I've seen the scene where he's murdered really quickly for no reason. Like what's going on? So it was nice to see the end credit scene and suddenly realise his body had been transferred to a different body for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason. Um, uh, I really love the score in this movie. John Ottman, who did mm. X2 and uh, Days of Future Past, came back for this. 
always always like to shout out the composer. <laughs> and then we didn't talk about a certain Mr. Hugh Jackman who shows up in this movie, who they, even when they try, they can't make an X-Men movie without. <laughs> he has a cameo in First Class, obviously. And then maybe that's what did in Dark Phoenix. I think it's the only one that he's not in at all. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. So I wasn't sure... Um, Timeline-wise, if this was like meant to be a hint to Logan, but it, Logan's set in the like very far future, so it's just right. just them being like, I guess at the end of Days of Future Past, we see him being collected, so it makes sense to be like, oh, we kind of left that thread untied. So just as an FYI, like here he is being experimented. But then right. it always confuses me how if Mystique was the one who yes. rescued him, how he ends <laughs> up back with Stryker. But, you know, let's just, it's, it's too, it's not worth the, the headache. I feel like they forgot that that was Mystique at the end of the previous movie. And they're like, oh, I ended up with Stryker, right? And then we're all like, no. No. Not what that was. Again, also always remember being confused as to why Mystique was good in this film because that again hinted to me that Mystique was bad. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, anyway. It's it's very different. (laughs) So we get we get him with the 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 like headpiece that I think is in Mm -hmm. the comics and Weapon X. Mm -hmm. And it's actually I feel like a better application of the Weapon X storyline than the X-Men Origins movie. Oh, hundred percent. And we get the we get the the it kind of retroactively works with the original trilogy too there's even a potentially creepy moment with him and gene yeah where they're sort of bonding yeah take on what do you take on that i didn't think it was weird until i thought about it and then i was like i'm just gonna stop thinking about like ooh, this teenage girl i'm gonna later consider my great love somehow yeah yeah and then cyclops like i hope that's the last we've seen of that guy (laughs) (laughs) haha nice but, you know, Hugh Jackman's great. I like Hugh Jackman yeah. in anything. I wish he had had a bit more success out of outside of these films. Um, but I love to see him. Um, and as much as he says he will never do it again, you know, we know he's coming back for Deadpool 3 now, so That's he's right. always going to come back and do it again. Yeah. Um, he's just brilliant. And it's a fun set piece. Weirdly um, uncredited, at least on Letterboxd, because he it didn't come up on my stats and now just ruined by X-Men people. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't get a credit for that one. So I think like, yeah. they didn't include him, so it was a genuine cameo, which is nice. I, I miss not knowing who was turning up in films. That was a nicer time. No, I know. Me too. Yeah. it's He's so good as that character, which is why... I still want them to bring Daphne Keene's X-23 into the MCU and have that be the Wolverine of, of the MCU rather than mm. cast someone else to play Logan. Uh, and to that end, there's a post credit scene here where the Essex Corporation, which is a hint of uh, a tease of Mr. Sinister, mm-hmm. who is not in Logan, but was intended to be, I guess, the, the <laughs> villain of Logan, gets his blood, his DNA. And even though that character is not in the next the, the next movie, it does still kind of follow up because we do get spoilers for Logan. We do get a Logan clone mm-hmm. in that movie. So there, there's still some kind of connective tissue, even though like most of the films in this franchise, it's pretty loose. <laughs> Very loose. But yeah, I liked it. And I think you're right about like the MCU. I think, you know, he's like, you say he's been in all but two now, if you count new mutants, X-Men yes. movies ever made. So, you know, he's, he's enduring you know a 20-year franchise and he's 
they can't recast him. I pray to God they don't recast him in the MCU because I just feel sorry for whoever they recast him with. They're, yeah. just, they're just never going to do it. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It would be great if um, little baby baby lady Wolverine <laughs> comes back. Not just such have a baby like, anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. Just have, have her pop up in Deadpool 3. Deadpool sort of exists outside of these shared universes anyway mm-hmm. and just have him drop her off on Avengers <laughs> Tower and be like, ah, oh, we're good. It's all it's all fine. She's there now. Don't worry about it. Um, I got it. <laughs> that's all we need. <sighs> Anything else about X-Men Apocalypse we haven't mentioned that you wanted to make sure we covered? I don't think so. I feel like I've been very scattergun and just, just <laughs> take, I mean, much like the franchise itself, I can't think <laughs> in a straightforward path. Yeah, exactly. It, this movie's particularly, I think, is all over the place, but that's part of its charm. That's why mm-hmm. I think you and I are both sort of like, it's kind of fun. Like, is it, it's, it, there's, there's, you can love imperfect movies. I feel like people are just like, it has to be a masterpiece or it's like garbage. And I think there's a middle ground. There's, you know, there's a, a guilty pleasure zone where movies that you know aren't the best, but you still enjoy and will defend, like Apocalypse and Out of the Shadows, I guess. I think the thing as well, though, that I really found having watched like five of them in succession, none of the X Men films are actually that great. Like they're Ooh. all they're all good. They are all fun. Yeah. Some of them might be great, but I remember when we used to talk about superhero films, we used to be like X Two and Spider Man Two are the pinnacle of all superhero films. They're the best superhero films ever made. And to be honest. Rewatching X Men and X Men Two, they're messy too. They yeah, were not perfect yeah, they films. Are. They were messy. They were totally indifferent. They still, even back then, did not know how to balance the massive cast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I just feel like when people were mean about this one, I'm like, have you actually watched the others? Because there isn't that right. big a gap between them. Like the gap in difference is really not as big as you all think it is. That's why I feel like it's because it tries something so different that people turned against it because they're yeah. like, wait, mythology, like this whole, like, an, uh, you know, an Egyptian God kind of thing. Like this isn't, you know, a, a, uh, a racial allegory. This is, mm-hmm. I mean, why does, even though that's the underlying dynamic with these movies and with these characters yeah. and their place in the world, why does every movie have to be a variation on the exact same thing? I think yeah. that's, that's, boring we've done that we've seen yeah. that there are there we'll watch x2 where Iceman's parents literally ask him have you tried not being a mutant like if you need it that direct there you go it's in there There's, there are movies with that to that end this keys this the, my next question perfectly what do you think of the franchise legacy what is the legacy of this franchise what does it contribute to cinema or the superhero genre considering that it is sort of all over the place i still think x-men and x2 do have an important place in film history. Um, them, along with the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans, did usher in a new wave. And I remember when they came out, people being like, wow, I didn't realise you could bring animation like that to life like this. Mm-hmm. And I do think that they will be remembered as such, much like a number of the Batman films at various points in their history have you know, their place in history for the right reasons. I think this prequel series outside of Logan has almost no place in film history, in superhero film history, um, which is a shame, especially for first class. Um, They got washed away. They were 
poorly planned out. There were multiple behind the scenes issues, it feels like, multiple Mm -hmm. directors taking reins, not taking reins, changes of writers. And then they were just up against the MCU at a time when the MCU couldn't be beaten. So yeah, I think the cultural legacy, I don't think that these newer films damaged it in any way, shape or form. I think people still adore the original two, if not the whole trilogy, because I know a lot of people hate Last Stand. But yeah, I think I think as a whole, X-Men films will be remembered as ushering in a new wave of cinema, but very much the at the start only. Yeah, these X-Men, these those early X-Men movies and early Spider-Man movies, those were the MCU before the MCU mm-hmm. was the MCU. Like they proved that Marvel characters could work on screen. It's yeah. di- it's interesting you mentioned Last Stand. Do you which do you think since we're talking Apocalypse, which do you think serves as a better conclusion of its respective trilogy last stand or apocalypse as a conclusion to the trilogy last stand but mm-hmm. i much prefer apocalypse yeah i think that's fair yeah i think last stand serves as a finish but it's not a very good movie because that, right. it doesn't seem to want to finish and it seems to just be moving through paces and then be like the end yeah it's also like a hundred minutes long which is crazy to me that yeah. that movie has two huge not even subplots two huge plots focuses mm-hmm. with the cure and dark phoenix and they're like all right an hour and a half and credits we're done bye and I'm it like, oh, zooms oh, through them at like a yes. terrifying pace it means that none of it has any impact there's no impact to the main character like charles xavier dying there's barely any impact they're just like okay right. cool we'll Bye, take his place well, yeah 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 this movie those both of those films have incredibly large scopes but i feel like this movie follows through on that on on what it sets out to do better than last stand does and therefore Absolutely. i think it's a i think it's a movie i prefer to like i get less yeah. let's put it this way i get less frustrated watching this than i do last stand where i'm like oh, you're like so like a little to the left and you would have like nailed yeah. this particular moment or whatever or give this more to breathe or whatever yeah yeah i 100 um, agree and then for the future, I think kind of we discussed it there. None of, like, well, Patrick Stewart popped up in Doctor Strange, but realistically, right. none of these actors and none of these characters are coming back. None of these actors, sorry, and these iterations of these characters right. are coming back outside of the odd cameo, much like Deadpool that. 3, I think, will be the... I feel like Deadpool 3 is our chance to get everyone back for, like, a moment, yeah. just to, like... Hey, you want to see Patrick Stewart, Fumka Jansen, James Marsden, or whoever's Halle yeah. Berry? We're even getting Jennifer Garner's Electra, like the, anything from oh, the I Fox era. That, yeah, everything from the Fox era. This is your shot. But I feel like it will be similar to the Doctor Strange sequence that it will be right. for at most five minutes. It will be yeah. an extended scene, and then we're going to be done. Right. Like if you hated we- Jessica Alba's Invisible Woman. Look, there she is. Oh, she's gone now. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's going to be that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think outside of you, Jackman, who looks like will be a key part of Deadpool 3. But even then, like, I think everyone would love him to be a part of the MCU, but I don't think you, Jackman, can do it or wants to commit to doing it. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think that's for the right reasons. So I think, yeah, outside of Deadpool 3, which will be like a yearbook of X-Men maybe, any new MCU X-Men characters are going to be fresh iterations. Yeah. 
And as maybe it should be at this point, honestly. And I, I'd love them to p- pull that playbook. Like, how many X-Men are there? Let's go back to what they were trying to do in first class and pull some of those, like, deeper cuts. It's yeah. what the MCU did so well with its original roster. So let's let's cast some unknown new actors or smaller actors and let's have them doing the smaller superheroes and have some fun again. Yeah, I think that, that that's a good idea. We're not doing rankings since there's 10 of these movies we're talking. I mean, I, I ranked 11 <laughs> of these movies this morning. Do you, you want to read your full 11 ranking? I will take it. <laughs> I can do it if you want. Mostly <laughs> because it's really controversial, so I'm worried Ooh, about being okay. younger. I'm a little nervous now, but sure, go for it. Okay, so 11, The Wolverine. Couldn't finish it. 10, X-Men Oranges Wolverine. I already I mean, discussed. Yeah. And um, 9, I've gone for The Last Stand. Just was a bit of a mess didn't feel any impact didn't feel the peril eight the new mutants i didn't give it a rewatch i remember just again thinking it was pretty boring and had a lot of promise but didn't follow through seven dark phoenix i feel like they could be swapped new mutants dark phoenix in last stand if i'd have rewatched all three maybe there would be a different order within those three mm. and then six through three is where it gets messy <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I did this solely off the rewatch that I did of the last 24 hours out of my levels of enjoyment and more importantly my levels of engagement 6 X-Men 5 X2 4 Days of Future Past and 3 Apocalypse okay wow just because I felt found myself far more engaged with the tone of Days of Future Past and Apocalypse um, the stakes, like we said, they're better, they're better established. And then you've got the powerhouses of McAvoy and Fassbender. But realistically, I think all four of them on a different day could move around. And I do wonder if my attentiveness to Apocalypse was because I knew I would be talking about it today. So maybe I gave it a bit <laughs> yeah, more. Possibly. Gave it a bit more attention. Um, number two, Logan. Um, I remember thinking it was very well made, but. I did think it was deeply overrated. Um, it, you know, I think I still only gave it, did I give it three and a half stars? Yeah, I still only gave it three and a half stars. Um, I only watched it last year. So by that point, you know, people are hailing it as the best film ever created to man. Right. Um, but very well done. And, you know, brilliant casting, brilliant performances. And then my first one was X-Men First Class. I just had such a blast re-watching that film. Um, absolutely loved it. And I'm really, really sad for the sequels it should have got with the same writers and director because I just had such fun watching that like ragtag bunch of mutants come together, you know, having to pick between the two daddies at the end, who goes with who and who goes with who. And um, yeah, I just think it's the best of what X-Men could be on the big screen and I wish we'd have had more. Imagine if Matthew Vaughn had like a normal amount of time to develop and, and produce yeah. that. Uh, and instead it's... he went and made Kingsman 2, which is <laughs> one of the worst films I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, and he's fully committed to that Kingsman franchise too because he, he did the prequel and I think he's supposed to do three at some yeah. point. I mean, people but, love him, but I, I've only seen the second one and I thought it was a piece of shit. <laughs> I liked the first one and then the second one, uh, I don't I don't hate it as much as some people, but I'm not going to like defend it either. It's the reason that I feel like, and I mentioned this on a previous episode, probably the first class one, and I'm going to, I guess, keep trying to manifest it. 
if Marvel uh, Studios were to circle back to any of these filmmakers, first of all, like half of them are canceled. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, rightly so exactly yeah not i'm not saying that um, in a negative way uh mangold is not gonna james mangold is not gonna commit to multiple films in a franchise but i could see matthew vaughn getting in there on the x-men in the mcu and i think and i think he brings like that that uniqueness to it yeah it needed yeah they're they're not the avengers they're they're a bunch of you know kids pretending to be spies yeah, kind of, pretty much. And that's what he nailed so well in first yeah. class. Uh, I almost kind of wonder if Brian Singer had come in, done Days of Future Past because it involved his cast, and then stepped aside and let Matthew Vaughn come back for Apocalypse. I think that would have been really cool. I think that would have been a much, much better film. Yeah. But I can see why he didn't, because I'd be pissed. Like, oh, you took all of my characters and killed them. Sweet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It would have it would have really literally been a, a JJ Abrams Ryan Johnson situation yeah. in yeah. that case. And that's not to but say yeah. I do I do enjoy Days of Future Past as a film. It just upsets right. me how much it retcons first class. Or yeah, it's not no, even it, it doesn't retcon it, it just throws it away. It casts which it is, aside and yeah, on. which is my sadness because I would love a, a true first class sequel. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, but yeah, no, we'll see what happens with that. But this has been a blast, Claire. Thank you so much for coming back to talk X-Men Apocalypse. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me at Claire Ellen Hope, Claire without an I, on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd. And you can find W-Rated at W-Rated Pod. And yeah, hanging around, doing things. Awesome. Well, this was so much fun. We'll have to find a... Uh, another underappreciated sequel in a long-running <laughs> franchise. It doesn't have to involve mutants this time. Um, We're kind of running out of mutants. I know. <laughs> I know. There's mutants in Planet of the Apes, too. So I did inadvertently did three mutant three mutant sci-fi action-adventure franchises uh, in a row, which was not intentional, but, you know, it is what it is. But yeah. <laughs> Big thanks to Claire from the W-Rated Podcast for coming on to discuss 2016's X-Men Apocalypse. As I said, this is the underappreciated X-Men film that I kind of quasi-go to bat for. Uh, not going to say those of you who hate this film are wrong, because I totally get it. It just kind of works for me as a guilty pleasure. Uh, and I guess, you know, after at a certain point, God Mutant uh, felt kind of inevitable. They had to do something with it. And I, it works in kind of a cheesy, like I said, 80s uh, creature movie kind of way. So I want to know, are you also a secret X-Men Apocalypse defender? Let me know. You can find me on social media all over the place, at Crooked Table, via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back on next episode with a discussion of 2017's Logan. Until then, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.